Welcome to the podcast of the Notre Dame Center for Citizenship and Constitutional Government. I'm Philip Munoz, the Center Director. The Center for Citizenship and Constitutional Government here at Notre Dame aims to explore the fundamental principles and practices of a free society so that citizens and civic leaders are equipped to secure our God-given natural rights, exercise the responsibilities of self-government, and pursue the common good. For more information about the Center, including our events, visit us on the web at constudies.nd.edu. Enjoy today's podcast. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, this is quite a crowd. Thanks so much uh, for joining us, uh, and thanks for those watching online. I'm Philip Munoz. I'm the director of the Center for Citizenship and Constitutional Government, and it's a, a great pleasure to introduce you, um, to welcome you to our event. Uh, uh, this is our last event uh, for the semester, um, so thanks for joining us. It's been an extraordinary semester. You can find all of our uh, future events and past events on our website. That's constudies.nd.edu. Um, and our Clarence Thomas lecture is also on the website there, too. So if you want to watch that, uh, that's been posted now. Um, just a, a one announcement um, for a future event. We just uh, confirmed uh, Congressman Dan, former Congressman Dan Lipinski will be our kickoff event um, uh, in January, I believe that's going to be January 13th. So look for that. That's the first week uh, of uh, school in the spring semester. So uh, Congressman Lipinski will be with us. Um, a couple thank yous, uh, especially since this is the last event of the year. My staff, they knew my staff knew I was going to do this, so they've disappeared. Um, I, three wonderful women work on with me. Now they close the doors, so they don't even have to listen to me. Um, uh, uh, Jen Smith and Soren uh, Greffenstadt and Amy Fajoli, they make all this possible, uh, including your lunch. So uh, even though uh, they won't be able to hear us, will you join me in thanking them? Um. Thanks. Uh, anyone who's ever run anything knows that you don't really run it, and they really do. So um, I'm especially appreciative to them. Um, for your students here, um, we have our Tocqueville Fellows Program. A lot of our fellows are, are situated down here. Uh, the fellows uh, meet with our speakers. So right after uh, the talk today, um, they'll have a private seminar uh, with our speaker, and it's just a chance for them uh, to have um, a small group conversation. We buy them copies of the book. I, I mention this to you because if you're an undergraduate interested in becoming involved, um, with the program, we'd love to have you apply for our Tocqueville Fellowship. Uh, there's several fellows we want to get rid of, so we're looking uh, for, for, for no, no. Um, we're looking for uh, new fellows. So if you're interested in that, please come talk to me or come talk to Soren. Uh, we also run the Constitutional Studies minor, and so if you're interested um, in, in constitutionalism, but the philosophy and history, the principles and practices of a free uh, and constitutional society, please come talk to me. We just posted our list of classes. And so that's an undergraduate minor open to uh, any undergraduate here at, at Notre Dame. Okay. One of the things the fellows do is they, uh, they introduce uh, our speakers. Uh, so uh, Grace um, Thilkin is going to introduce our speaker today. Grace is a junior, right, from California. She's a constitutional studies minor, and uh, she'll introduce our speaker. Grace? Good afternoon. Vivek Ramaswamy is an entrepreneur and founder of Royvent Sciences, a biopharmaceutical company founded in 2014, 
which focuses on applying technology to drug development. After growing up in Cincinnati, Ohio as a first-generation American, Mr. Ramaswamy graduated summa cum laude from Harvard with a degree in biology before working as a biotech investor and earning a law degree from Yale. He has since become a prominent commentator on stakeholder capitalism, big tech censorship, and woke culture. And he serves on the boards of directors of the Philanthropy Roundtable and the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. He is also a New York Times bestselling author and comes to speak with us today about his book, Woke Incorporated, Inside Corporate America's Social Justice Scam, published in August 2021. Please join me in welcoming Mr. Vivek Ramaswamy. this. Thank you, uh, making sure the mic is working. So uh, Professor Munoz asked me to remind everyone that I actually will be uh, signing books after this that the bookstore has arranged on the outside. I think we, uh, we fear that we may run out of those copies. So for those who aren't able to, I'll sign something else on a book you can buy at a, at a later date. Uh, and for the undergrads, we've actually arranged for uh, the undergrads in particular to receive a copy of the book without having to purchase it. And, uh, and I'll make that signed copy available to any of the undergrads who'd like it as well. So uh, I was reminded to say that at the outset. And, and thanks to Professor Munoz for the, for the invitation to speak here. I was chatting with a few of you beforehand. And, uh, and one of you was from, from Fort Wayne, Indiana. So uh, I, wanted to, I wanted to tell a short joke that actually took me back to my childhood in Fort Wayne, Indiana. I, we used to come to South Bend or this northern area of Indiana because my, uh, my aunt used to live here. And the story is I actually asked, asked my own parents why they came halfway around the world to Cincinnati, Ohio. That's where I was born. And my dad said that he actually needed to be somewhere close to his sister who lived in Fort Wayne and he could get a job at the GE plant in Evendale, Ohio, which is where he worked for his entire career. That was the closest place he could find. That of course begged the question for me of why his sister came halfway around the world to Fort Wayne, Indiana. And uh, the only answer we ever got was it is the only U.S. state with the word India contained in the, in the name of the state. So that, that, was, that was what I was joking around beforehand. Uh, so, so, so look, I, we've got students in the audience. I'm going to say this at the, very, at the very outset that I'm going to lay out on the table what some of my true beliefs are. And they happen to get to the heart of what I consider to be some of the more contentious issues of our current political and social climate. What I'll say is that I say to somebody who's a recent father, I have a 20-month-old at home, uh, your ideas aren't like your kids. If there's a better one that comes along, you can just take it and, and claim it as your own. And I encourage you to think about it more like a set of clothes. For the next hour, you can try on what I say, have to say like a set of clothes, see if it fits. If you don't like it, you can put it back on the rack at the end, no strings attached, uh, full refund included. But, but for the next hour, I'm going to ask you to try it on like a set of clothes. And, and if it fits, and even if it fits partially and you go home with something different than you came with, then I would consider that a, a win for a conversation that we have not only in this room, but conversations that I hope continue far outside this room and for hopefully months and years to come. So with that, I'll, I'll kick off with actually speaking of education, taking me back to an early stage in my education back in second grade in the year 1993 in Cincinnati, Ohio at Evendale Elementary, when I heard Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech for the first time. And that was the speech where Martin Luther King famously said that, I hope my four children grow up in a country where they are judged not on the color of their skin, but on the content of their character. And I'll tell you that that dream, it stuck with me. It meant something to me because it was actually the dream 
that allowed my dad to come halfway around the world to Evendale, Ohio and build a successful career at the GE plant, despite the fact that he had a thick Indian accent, still does today. It was the dream that allowed me to go in a single generation from being the kid of immigrants who came to this country with almost no money to becoming the founder of a multi-billion dollar biotech company that I had the privilege of leading as CEO for seven years. And I led that company through thick and thin. We got a number of drugs approved all the way through the approval process, several of which are approved drugs for patients today. The one that I'm personally most proud of is a new FDA approved drug for prostate cancer. But I stepped down as CEO of that company earlier this year to address a different kind of cancer. Not a biological cancer, but what I viewed as a cultural cancer that threatened to kill the dream that Martin Luther King had 60 years ago, that threatened to kill the very dream that allowed me to achieve everything I ever had in my career. And that new, that new intellectual cancer, as I saw it, was more like a secular religion. It was a secular religion whose belief system centered on the idea that your identity is based on your race, your gender, and your sexual orientation. That if you're black, you're inherently disadvantaged. That if you're white, you're inherently privileged. No matter your economic background, no matter your upbringing, your race and your gender govern who you are and the thoughts and ideas that you're allowed to have. And you don't need to take it from me as a description of what constitutes this new religion. I'd encourage you to take it directly from the high priests of this new religion, one of whom is a New York Times bestselling author that has had a book that's far more successful uh, than mine, which was Ibram Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist. I consider him to be one of the one of the prophets of this new religion. And he famously says in the opening chapters of his book that the only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. The only remedy to present discrimination is future discrimination. Agree or not, we can debate it, but that's the idea on the table. Or the words of Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, another representative of this new religion, who famously said a year and a half ago that we don't want any more black faces that don't want to be a black voice, that we don't want any more brown faces that don't want to be a brown voice, end quote. Put aside the fact that I probably don't fit her description of what counts as a brown voice. There's a really clever presupposition baked into that worldview, and it's this. It's the idea that your race represents not just something as superficial as the color of your skin, but something about the content of your ideas as well, about your perspective, about your voice. And that means that if you disagree with that perspective or disagree with that voice, that by definition makes you a racist, and there is no greater damnation in modern America, in my opinion, than to be called a racist. So when given the choice between pledging allegiance to that new religion and being tarred with that scarlet R, everyday Americans are now choosing to bend the knee. And that, to me, has created a new culture of fear in this country. Fear of losing your job, fear of your kids getting a bad grade in school, fear of becoming a pariah in your own community. So much so that that new culture of fear has begun to erode our culture of free speech in America. And if you ask me, the best measure of the health of any democracy especially American democracy, is the percentage of people who are willing to say in public what they actually believe. And right now, it is my opinion that we are doing abysmally on that metric. There's actually good data to support that as well. 
according to a recent survey conducted by the Cato Institute that included Republicans, Democrats, and independents, over 60% of Americans, I want you to process that number for a second, over six out of 10 Americans reported that they were afraid to express their true beliefs in public because of the current political environment. To me, that is not America. That is not the country that my parents came halfway across the world to join. That is not the country that I learned to pledge allegiance to as a kid. That is not the country that I want to see America become. And so one of the questions that I trace in the book is how this new secular religion went from being about a worldview that was about standing up to the system. And by the way, there's something about anyone who wants to stand up to the system that I can respect. Whether or not I agree with you, it takes courage to stand up to an orthodoxy. How this new religion went from being about of woke culture went from being about standing up to the system, sticking it to the man, being countercultural, being heterodox. How it went from standing up to the system to becoming the system. And one of the untold stories that I reveal in the book is how this actually traces back to the moment when wokeness merged with capitalism. According to at least my thesis, it is the moment when wokeness married capitalism that got supercharged with the muscle of corporate power that it actually became unstoppable. And that's a story that traces back to an unexpected place, back to the 2008 financial crisis. Many of you were probably kids at that time if you're an undergrad in the room. Uh, many of you adults in the room may remember it better. The 2008 financial crisis was a tipping point for me in my own career. I got my first job in New York City at a hedge fund in the fall of 2007, hedge fund that got an honorable mention in Michael Lewis's book, The Big Short, you know, told about the 08 crisis and the lead up to it. I saw this from a front row seat in the fall of 2007 to see the really the tumult that unfolded in the 2008 financial crisis. That was my first year in the working world. It meant something to me. I had a front row seat. And one of the things that I saw in the aftermath of the 2008 crisis was a political environment in this country where, especially in the eyes of the old left, big business became the bad guys in this country. Wall Street was the bad guy in this country. And in my opinion, dating back to the way I saw it when I was 23 years old, for good reason. Because you had a lot of bankers, the kind of people who I was working for or interviewing for jobs with that made plenty of money when the times were good, but relied on bailouts from the public fisc when times went bad. So I thought this was an understandable impulse towards skepticism of modern capitalism. It was really skepticism of modern crony capitalism at the time. But right around that time, we also had the election of the first black president of the United States, Barack Obama. We had other cultural winds that were brewing in the country that came to a head that said the real problem, the real source of injustice wasn't quite poverty. It wasn't quite economic injustice. No, it was racial injustice and misogyny and bigotry. And so while the Occupy Wall Street movement wanted to say we want to take money from those wealthy corporations and redistribute it to poor people, this new strand of the left had a different theory that said that it wasn't quite about monetary distribution. It was about some other kind of genetically inherited disempowerment that we ought to actually wake up to instead. And the birth of that new strand of the left actually presented, in my opinion, the opportunity of a generation for Wall Street and for big business in this country because they could now go from being the bad guys to being the good guys if they simply said the right things to that newly ascendant strand of the left. Because if you're Wall Street, Occupy Wall Street is a pretty tough pill to swallow. But the new woke stuff is actually pretty easy. You applaud diversity and inclusion. You put some token minorities on your boards. You muse about the racially disparate impact of climate change. 
after you fly in a private jet to Davos. It's pretty good work if you can get it. They were, they were happy to do it, but they did not do it for free. They effectively expected that that new strand of the left look the other way when it came to leaving their corporate power structures intact. And so as I joke around in the book, it's the story of how a bunch of big banks got in bed with a bunch of woke millennials. Together, they birthed woke capitalism, and they used that to put Occupy Wall Street up for adoption. And that trade worked so well for both sides that their friends on the other coast in Silicon Valley decided they want to get in on the act. Because if you're in big tech in the early 2010s, there is no doubt to where the political threat to your power structure originates. It originates on the left. And you had to defend against the left to keep your monopoly power structure intact. But what they recognized is if we could lend that monopoly power in service of the goals of that newly ascendant strand of the left, by censoring, or in their language, moderating certain content on the internet that that new woke left didn't want to see online, they could do that, but they wouldn't do it for free. They again expected that that new strand of the left look the other way when it came to leaving their monopoly power intact. And again, that trade has worked masterfully for both sides. You see, that's the story of this arranged marriage. It is not a marriage of love. It is more like mutual prostitution. And the net result of that act is the illegitimate birth of what I call the woke industrial complex, a force in modern American life that is far more powerful than either big government or big business alone because it is a hybrid of the two that together can do what neither one can do on its own. And sincere liberals are tricked into adulation because of their love of the neo-progressive woke causes that these institutions happen to push. And conservatives, for their part, are duped into submission because their own inner conscience tells them that the free market can do no wrong without recognizing that the free market that they idealize does not exist today. And both sides are blinded to the rise of this new uniquely 21st century Leviathan that is far more powerful than what Thomas Hobbes envisioned 400 years ago that is far more powerful than what our own founding fathers envisioned 250 years ago, and is the defining invisible force that guides the greatest threat, I think, to individual liberty and prosperity in everyday life outside of the relationship with the state itself. And so that's how you get to corporate America, then jumping in on the act, not just Silicon Valley or Wall Street, but to Coca-Cola, issuing new statements about a voting law earlier this year in Georgia that made it sound more like a super PAC than a soft drink manufacturer, teaching its employees how to be less white. It's their words, not mine, on their LinkedIn training module, modeled after Robin D'Angelo's book earlier this year. Rather doing that than talking about the impact of their own products on a nationwide epidemic of diabetes and obesity, including in the black community that they profess to care so much about. Or Nike, relentlessly criticizing slavery 250 years ago here in the United States, without saying a peep about reducing its own reliance on slave labor in China today, to source $250 sneakers that they sell to black kids in the inner city who can't afford to buy books for school. That is how this new game is played. And speaking of China, I, I do want to comment on the fact that there, there was a new actor that showed up on the scene in recent years who turned that bilateral arranged marriage into a three-party affair. And that is the Communist Party of China. I believe they understand this game far more deeply than any of us do. There's even a Chinese word for wokeness today. It's called baitsu, literally refers to progressive white people in the United States, and they use it to laugh at us. It's kind of the equivalent of the, the Soviet Union's term useful idiot in the United States for communist sympathizers in, in the 20th century. That is baitsu in the 21st century for the Chinese. 
but it's worse than that. They're using it as a tool to erode our greatest geopolitical asset of all. And that is not our nuclear arsenal. It is our moral standing on the global stage. I'll tell you how it works. Listen really carefully to what they're saying. Xi Jinping last year was pressed by the EU and the UN on the human rights crisis in the Shenzhen province of China, where there are literally over 1 million Uyghurs enslaved in concentration camps, subject to forced sterilization, communist indoctrination, and worse, in what I personally view as probably the greatest human rights atrocity committed by a major nation since the Third Reich of Germany. And the first thing that he says in response is that Black Lives Matter shows that the United States is no better. You think that's an accident, it's not. Earlier this year, his top diplomat comes to Alaska to a United States summit and spends his 15-minute opening statement, Yang Jiechi does, explaining that China wants to see the U.S. stop slaughtering, that is his word, slaughtering black Americans, and that China wants to see the U.S. do better on human rights. You listen to Xi Jinping's most recent address to the EU, the number of times he uses the words equity and inclusion are remarkable for their co-opting of our own terms and our own cultural architecture here at home to advance their goals. This would be laughable if it weren't for the fact that our own corporations and other institutions as well, something we can talk about, elite institutions in American corporate life, including universities, lend implicit credibility to their moral claims because they have become the new self-appointed class of the international arbiters of moral justice, multinational corporations have, relentlessly criticizing injustice in the United States, relentlessly critiquing so-called microaggressions like racism and transphobia here at home, without saying a peep about the actual macroaggressions and human rights abuses abroad in places like China, creating a false moral equivalence between China and the United States. Take Disney, just a couple of years ago, says it will not shoot a film in the state of Georgia if Georgia passes a new anti-abortion statute, a heartbeat bill. Yet just last year, Disney shoots Mulan in the Shenzhen province of China, literally ground zero of the Uyghur human rights crisis that I described earlier. And they don't say a peep until the end of the film when they finally muster up the courage to put in the credits of the film the fact that we thank the local CCP authorities for allowing us the privilege of filming here, the very authorities that have enslaved over one million Uyghurs in concentration camps for being religious minorities in China. Nike, NBA, BlackRock, Goldman Sachs, the list goes on, Airbnb. This is the new game of corporate America and how they play their game. Even their crony celebrities to do it too, my fellow Ohioan LeBron James, was the first person to come to China's public defense when the general manager of the Houston Rockets, Daryl Morey, tweeted a couple years ago, fight for freedom, stand with Hong Kong. LeBron James criticized Morey for daring to stand with Hong Kong and came to China's public defense. You might ask yourself why companies and their crony celebrity hires do it. And the answer is actually really simple. It comes down to money. Because if you're China, what you do is you're the CCP. You build a great Chinese wall that prevents you from entering the Chinese market if you dare to criticize the CCP. But they roll out the red carpet if you criticize the United States. So companies are just doing what companies do, whatever allows them to make the most money. But in return, what they've actually done is create a false moral equivalence between the U.S. and China. And this dates back to a philosophy embraced both by Democrats and Republicans in the 1990s, a philosophy of so-called democratic capitalism, 
where we made a mistake in this country, where we thought we could use our investment, our money, to get them to be more like us. Instead, they turned that game on its head and they realized that they could use their market power, their money, to get us to be more like them. Or one step better, they realized that they could use our money to get us to be more like them. We sent Big Macs and Happy Meals, thinking that was going to somehow spread democracy to places like China. Instead, they sent back Nike sneakers and Disney movies as Trojan horses that undermine the United States from within by creating that false moral equivalence. And if you have any doubt about how well that's working, just look at the lack of accountability for the origin of the coronavirus pandemic, where any inquiry into what I believe is the most likely source for the origin of this pandemic in a lab in Wuhan was equated with an allegation of racism. You have every other virus. I'm a biology major from Harvard. I could go on on a list from, from the Ebola virus to the Marburg virus named after the town in Germany where it originated, the Zika virus named after the forest where it came from, to the Japanese encephalitis virus, which, as you might guess, was named after Japan, where it came from. You, you could say all those things and be in perfectly fine ground, even when it came to COVID-19. You could talk about the UK strain, the South African strain, the Brazilian strain, the Indian double mutant strain, and you'd be on perfectly fine footing. But if you say the Wuhan virus, you're immediately bashed as a racist and a bigot. You got to ask yourself why. It's that the CCP has weaponized not just the woke pandemic, not just the, the COVID-19 pandemic, but the woke pandemic to create a false equivalence between Chinese nihilism and American idealism. And when that happens, nihilism wins every time. So if we take stock of keeping score of where we stand in this game so far, the winners of the game are pretty clear. Progressive activists in the United States, multinational corporations, the Chinese Communist Party. The real losers of this game are the American people and American democracy itself. So the question is, what does a solution look like to this new invisible force, to this new invisible problem that I believe represents the biggest threat to liberty and prosperity in our day? And I think, I think especially for conservatives, and I think there's, there's a message here for the conservative movement, but I think it's more important than being about the conservative movement. It's actually about a broader American movement, a revival of what it not only means to be uh, you know, a, a person who's fighting against this orthodoxy, but what it means even to be an American in the modern moment. And you know, I'll, I'll, I'll put on the table one of my heroes from 40 years ago was Ronald Reagan. And one of the reasons he was my heroes was that he did what he needed to do to address the biggest threats to liberty and prosperity in his era. He slashed taxes, he cut government regulations, did what he needed to do to usher in an era of prosperity whose fruits we continue to enjoy to this day. That's why he's one of my heroes. But I'll also remind you of a quote from one of my favorite Republicans, probably my favorite Republican of all time, who was not Ronald Reagan 40 years ago, but was Abraham Lincoln, who spoke 160 years ago when he reminded us that the dogmas of a quiet past are inadequate to the stormy present. And I argue in the book that the dogmas of 1980 are inadequate to address the unique threats to liberty and prosperity that we face today. That in 1980, the biggest threat to liberty in this country may have been big government. Today, it's not. It is a new hybrid of big government and big business that is far more powerful than either one alone. And there is no better example of that confluence of power than in the case of what I believe we see today with big tech censorship, where conventional wisdom, 1980s wisdom, might have said that these are private companies that are free to decide what does and doesn't show up on their websites. 
And I say in response to that, as a one-time libertarian with still strongly, fiercely libertarian sympathetic instincts, I say that makes sense if these companies are actually operating as private companies. But what we now know is that these companies are not making the decisions of a private company alone. They're responding to threats of the government. They're responding to statutory inducements of the government. In fact, in many cases, they're working hand in glove with the government to take down hate speech and misinformation as defined by the party in power, but that the US government cannot take down directly because we have this pesky thing called the First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States. Well, one of the, one of the arguments I make in the book, one of the arguments that's, you know, I think become popularized since the book was written, is the idea that government cannot use private companies to do through the back door the dirty work that government cannot carry out directly through the front door, and that if it is state action in disguise, then the Constitution still applies. And when these companies work hand in glove implicitly or explicitly with the government by responding to governmental threats, by benefiting from statutory inducements provided by the government, by directly coordinating with the government under existing Supreme Court precedents that I'm happy to talk about in the Q&A, these companies are bound by the First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States, even though a normal private company in the 1980s vision of the free market would not have been. That's a principle as it applies to the online world. But we see a different problem in the offline world, where the, some of those same companies and more are now firing employees who refuse to bend the knee to that same new orthodoxy. Countless people, including a Virginia shipyard worker, last year were fired for wearing the hat of the wrong presidential candidate to work. I personally believe that America is not a place that forces you to choose between expressing yourself freely and putting food on the dinner table, between the First Amendment and the American dream. I believe we're the quintessential nation where you get to enjoy both of those things at the same time. Well, what I believe we should do is, if we're gonna have protected classes in our civil rights statutes at all, for race and gender and religion and national origin, and as of Supreme Court doctrine last year, sexual orientation, then we should add political belief to that list as well. We should make political expression a civil right in this country by making political belief a protected class in the Civil Rights Act in 1964. There's a side of my brain that says that that's the wrong way to look at this problem. That's my old libertarian instincts from inside me that say that the free market should work these things out. That if all of these silly businesses over here are firing, say it's conservatives today, in the McCarthyist era, it might've been liberals back then, it doesn't matter, let's say it's conservatives today, are firing conservatives, then these other businesses could hire them instead and the market should work these things out. And the last thing we should wanna do is use state power to apply yet another regulation that tells businesses what they can and can't do. There's a certain logic and appeal to that line of thinking, I have to admit. But here's my main problem, is that we can't have it both ways. Either we get rid of protected classes altogether and we really trust the market to do its work for discrimination on all axes, on race, on gender, on sexual orientation, religion, national origin, let's have at it. Or we apply those standards even-handedly by adding political expression to that list. And it's not an accident and just an act of hypocrisy. It is my belief that the deep state equivalent in the private sector, what I call sort of the deep corporate that resides not only in corporate America, but in many universities across this country today as well, that was created in the wake of the civil rights statutes to administer anti-discrimination provisions on the lines of race, gender, religion, and national origin became the very bureaucracies that then advanced the new anti-racist agenda, which in turn created the very conditions for the kind of political discrimination that we see today. So there's a causal link 
to the civil rights statutes in the first place that created the very conditions for the most rampant form of discrimination that I believe we see in institutional America today. That is not racial discrimination. It is political discrimination. And I think that if we're going to adopt those standards and create those conditions for having created discrimination in the first place, then we have to apply those standards evenly by making sure we protect political belief as well. Those are the kinds of solutions, at least from a legislative and policy perspective, that I lay out in the book. But I do want to make sure we reserve some time for Q&A, so I'm just going to wrap up with, with another five minutes on a couple of other categories of solutions uh, before actually opening it up to some questions that I'd love to take from all of you. By first saying that I think that either policy solutions are really just the tip of the iceberg. They're just really a form of symptomatic therapy. I think that I don't predict we're going to see those policy solutions, I certainly not at a national level. In a divided polity like ours, I do not expect a piece of legislation that puts civil rights statute, puts political belief, and makes it a civil right. I don't expect that coming down the pike. Here's what I do see coming down the pike. I do see some solutions emerging in the private sector that I am personally, I'll be the first person to admit, somewhat conflicted about, but I think are coming, whether we like it or not. They're market solutions for products that represent alternative brands that embrace affirmative American orthodoxies that stand up to the newly popular woke orthodoxy. Now, the reason I'm torn about it is I don't necessarily love living in a country where we have a right-wing version of coffee and a left-wing version of coffee, <laughs> as we do today, actually, with, with Black Rifle Coffee and, and Starbucks. I worry that when we get to the point where we have a right-wing version of baseball and a left-wing version of baseball, we may be at the beginning of the end of the Tocquevillian vision of the American experiment as we know it, where Tocqueville actually famously spoke of the intermediating institutions that bind us together across an otherwise diverse, divided polity. We need an apolitical private sector that brings us together, whether we are black or white, whether we're man or woman, whether we're Democrat or Republican. Our polity depends on those sanctuaries to bind us together across our divided political and tribal differences. At the same time, we're also not starting from neutral territory. And what I hope to see happen is businesses rise to the occasion that don't create necessarily the right-wing alternative, but alternatives that offer an alternative orthodoxy to the three-letter acronyms perpetuated by corporate America and other institutions today, from ESG to CSR to DEI. One of my favorite alternatives is excellence, opportunity, and civility. Let's call it EOC if they have to come in sets of three. Whatever it is to rise above the political and cultural battles to be purposefully apolitical, purposefully reviving an American shared ethos and spirit that we can all share together in a way that might steal a million customers from J.P. Morgan Chase or users from Twitter or, or buyers of ice cream from Ben & Jerry's for that matter. To be able to actually wake up the rest of corporate America to say that, you know what, we might have screwed that up over the last five years. Speak the one language that corporate America understands, which is to be hit in their pocketbook, and hopefully see a pendulum that swings back to a normalized, depoliticized private sector. Whether or not we like it, I think that's coming. I have, uh, for, for better or worse, the privilege of being at the forefront of seeing and possibly even in being invited to invest in and spawn many of those opportunities, something that I am conflicted about, but, but I think is coming nonetheless. But I think that category of solutions still pales in comparison to what I think is the most important thing that we actually need in our country at this unique moment, which is a cultural revival, a fundamentally cultural solution. You know, I think that our schools are teaching our kids to be ashamed of our history rather than to be proud of it. Patriotism is on the decline. Faith has nearly disappeared. If I ask you the question of what does it even mean to be an American in the year 2021, 
I don't think we have a good answer to that question. And I personally believe that our lack of an answer to that question is the black hole at the center of our nation's soul. And when you have a vacuum that runs that deep, that's when darker philosophies begin to fill the void. That is what makes wokeism and its close cousins of scientism and postmodernism more broadly the equivalent of opium for the modern American soul. I'm part of a generation of millennials, people younger than me, Gen Z, who are hungry for a purpose, hungry for a sense of identity, hungry for meaning, hungry for something bigger than themselves. But we've forgotten all of the ways in which America itself as a nation can be that purpose, can be that identity. You see that we have so morally hungry for a cause that's left unfulfilled by the kinds of things that used to fulfill that hunger for purpose and meaning. We have a God-sized hole at the center of a generation's heart that if God doesn't fill that vacuum, if country doesn't fill that vacuum, then something else is going to instead. We have a moral hunger that we're trying to feed with the equivalent of fast food, going to Ben and Jerry's and ordering a cup of ice cream with a cup of morality on the side, thinking that's going to do the trick. It doesn't work that way. We hunger for more substantial fare. And the beautiful thing about America is that unlike most nations in human history, we were actually built on the idea that we were a vision. We weren't even a place. We were a vision of what a place could be. And that vision was, was to be sure, plural in nature. But at the top of that list of ideas was actually that dream that I told you about at the very beginning, the American dream. The idea that no matter who you are, or where your parents came from, or what your skin color is, that you can achieve anything you ever want in this country with your own hard work, your own commitment, and your own dedication. And by the way, the fact that you will be free to speak your mind at every step of the way as you do it. That is the American dream. Now, you might hear folks on the other side say that that's a lofty, high-minded vision of what America stood for, but America's never lived up to those ideals. America's hypocritical since its inception, that we're a flawed nation because we've always fallen short of that vision. And you know what I say in response to that? I say that somewhere deep down in there, they're actually right. America wasn't perfect at its inception. America isn't perfect today. It's my opinion that America will never be perfect because perfection doesn't exist on God's green earth. In fact, America was built on the idea that perfection is impossible. That is why we have a system of checks and balances in this country. But more so than any nation in human history, America was built on the idea that the pursuit of perfection is possible, that the pursuit of happiness is possible, that the pursuit of liberty, equality, and justice for all are worth pursuing. Those were the values that won the American Revolution 250 years ago. Those were the values that reunited us after the Civil War 160 years ago. Those are the values that won us World War I and World War II and the Cold War. And it is my belief that those are still the values that give hope to the free world. And if we can revive those common values over fractious group identity, then nobody in the world, not a nation, not a corporation, not a virus is going to defeat us. That is what true American exceptionalism is all about, and that is what we will need to revive in order to defeat this cultural epidemic.
Thank you for the invitation and I look forward to your questions. Professor Munoz, you tell me how to, uh, how to take the questions. I'd love to prioritize questions from folks who want to push back on things I've said, but we'll take, we'll take uh, questions from anyone. Okay, good. We do have a tradition in the program, which is we always invite our undergraduate students uh, to ask the first question. So any undergraduates? And I'm going to pass the microphone uh, around. Always a dangerous thing to do, but students, you set an example. Short questions, because we have a lot of people. And uh, tell us who you are, uh, where you're at, okay? Uh, Zeph, we'll let you go ahead and go first. Thanks, Mr. Ramaswamy. Uh, my name is Zef Cernkovich. I'm a Tocqueville Fellow, also in the Constitutional Studies minor. And you mention a revival of morality as a solution to this problem that you've identified of a woke religion. Um, and I think it's very apt. But, you know, today we've seen a great decline in religiosity in America. And, yeah, it's not clear that there's kind of a, a hope for growth anytime soon in that regard. So I guess I was, I was wondering if you could expand more on, on the role that you see religion playing yep. in combating this woke ink and how, yeah, how religiosity can be re-inspired. Yeah, so I, I uh, agree in spirit with what you just said. As a semantic matter, uh, just to put a fine point on it, I'll say that I disagree that religiosity has declined. It's just that the religiosity as applied to new secular religions have taken the place of religiosity that's centered on God. And I think that, you know, when you stop believing in God, you don't stop believing in anything. You just relocate your beliefs to something else. I think that's what the siren song of postmodernism is all about. Now, I think there's actually a, a, you know, some, some, there's some clever legal arguments embedded in that. One I can't resist um, you know, mentioning that's in the book, which I think is an example of fighting back. Actually, the, the Title VII prohibition on the discrimination on the basis of religion doesn't simply prevent you as an employer from discriminating against an employee on account of being religious. It also means you can't, as the employer, force your employee to bow down to your religion. Actually, if you think wokeness meets the Supreme Court's test for religion, for all the reasons that I argue in the book, I believe it does— I actually think we see rampant Title VII violations today on account of the civil rights statutes as they exist. So I, that was a side point I just wanted to comment on that related to one of the policy solutions that I mentioned before. Look, I think that the answer to that can't begin with the state. I think the answer to that can't really begin anywhere other than in the family with a cultural revival and a revival of the family as a structure for inculcating a belief system that we pass on to the next generation. But I think it's more achievable in our schools and through other institutions by at least reviving patriotism and belief in country instead. It is not a complete solution, but I think it will be a sufficient solution to address the worst of the cultural epidemic that we've seen. I'd personally like to see a revival of civic education in our country. I'd like to see civic education woven affirmatively into primary education in a mandatory way, grades one through 12, including, by the way, civic service, mandatory civic service woven into primary education. That's a controversial thought on the left and the right for different reasons. But I personally think that you cannot value a country that you inherit. You have to value something that you have a stake in building. You know, I think the libertarian instincts and many of us may be offended by a sensibility like that. Well, 
I'm not talking about doing it for adults who are free agents. There are, in every sense of the word, we recognize that even being the, the most free versions of ourselves as adults require being fully formed citizens before we become adults. I think the idea of making a personal sacrifice in an even way is something that restores the idea that we help create a nation that we can be proud of because you actually had a stake in building it. And I also think that one of the, one of the things I uh, frequently say in responding to, let's just say people have different policy perspectives than I do from the left, that call for a redistribution of wealth or whatever in the country. I'm not a big fan of that because I think that part of a culture of excellence, which is part of what it means to be American, a culture of excellence demands, in many cases, inequity in material outcomes so long as we all start from the same place. But, but here's what I am open to talking about, is not so much a redistribution of wealth, but a redistribution of civic duty. And I think that we are ripe for a conversation about a redistribution of duty. We have a political theorist here, John Rawls wrote a theory of justice if there was a sequel to that that I would write, I'd call it a theory of duty, where we actually talk about the ways in which we bear our duties evenly as citizens, whether we're born to, to parents of kids, rich or poor, black or white, inner city or suburban, and restore the idea that we bear our civic duties evenly no matter who we are or where we were born. And against that backdrop, I think we might actually find psychic security in the idea that certain people may go on to be more successful in different domains than others. And that's okay because green pieces of paper are just green pieces of paper, but we have a common belief in something greater in a, in a shared nation that at least binds us together and fills some of that moral void. In a deeper sense, I'm not going to argue that it fills all of the moral void at a deeper inner spiritual level that we may need, but I think it will be a leap forward from where we are today and one that's more possible to achieve through institutional life, through civic education, through our schools, et cetera, than the solution of really filling the truly God-sized vacuum in a generation's heart that can only be filled at home through a revival of the family itself. Okay, another student question. This is Hi, Mr. Ramaswamy. Thank you very much for coming and for your lecture. Uh, my name is Brian Joseph. I'm a sophomore in the Tocqueville program. Um, and I was particularly interested by your discussion of antitrust law in your book. Um, now, you mentioned that antitrust law, as it's, was, as it's typically practiced, as it was you know, uh, decided in the progressive era with stuff like um, the Sherman Antitrust Act, is inapplicable to this particular problem, given the fact that um, we're not dealing with price fixing, but idea fixing. So I wanted to ask you, um, what do we really do about that? Because in the legal sphere, in the political sphere, that would be kind of hard to change, I would say, that, that you know, to particular those statutes. It'd be kind of hard to incorporate um, solutions to idea fixing. You mentioned the judicial route through some theoretical um, legal arguments you mentioned in your book and also some, some policy arguments, but I wanted you to articulate that more clearly. Yeah, well, the first thing I want to thank you for is actually being truthful about for the fact that you read the book. Because <laughs> one of the things I've, I've found people say, read the book, and I did this myself too, read the first chapter, last chapter, skim the rest. Man, you get to get to the antitrust part, you really, you really read that book, so, so thank you for that. Uh, so so one, of the, one of the cases I make is that I think uh, antitrust law is a bit of a lightning rod that in some ways a feigned retreat, the equivalent of a tactic in warfare called a feint, where you go in the wrong direction to sort of take your enemy there, to ultimately actually seize the victory in the end. I think that's what big tech is doing along the axis of antitrust law, which was designed to police abuses of market power that allowed you to gouge consumers on price. I don't think that's actually what we're seeing today. Most of big tech's products are available to consumers for cheap prices, often for free. Consumer choice is widespread across products that make our lives easier in a lot of ways. I think that's the wrong place to look. That's why they run circles around the House Financial Services Committee every time they're subpoenaed to talk about them about antitrust issues. 
it's the wrong conceptual vocabulary of the, 21st of the 20th century to address what's a uniquely 21st century problem of a monopoly not on products, but a monopoly on ideas. And if you take those four big companies and break them up into 40 small companies, if all 40 of those small companies still adhere to the same ideological orthodoxy as most startups do today, as most venture capitalists already do today, that doesn't change the monopoly on ideas that effectively operates according to an, the principles of an ideological cartel, not a product cartel, but an ideological cartel that punishes the defector. It's the way actually a normal economic cartel would work. You punish a defector who ultimately sets a lower price by effectively eliminating them from the cartel. You do the same thing with respect to now this ideological cartel by punishing anyone who defects from that ideology. So it's an incomplete solution, but I, but, uh, but I think the lowest hanging fruit is to go after the nexus to state power itself. So I think that a lot of what you see when, by the way, when that House Financial Services Committee subpoenas them anymore, what they're saying is if you don't take down hate speech and misinformation as we, the party in power, define it, then we're going to come after you. Then we're going to break you up. Then we're going to make it swift. Then we're going to make it aggressive. And almost all of those are actually exact quotes from hearings in Congress and in the Senate over the last year. And so these guys then fly back to the other coast on their jets and they decide to do what they were effectively told to do by the party in power. Oh, and by the way, they don't even have to be worried about being sued by ordinary citizens in state court over it because there's this other federal law called Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act that says that they're not liable for taking down content that is otherwise constitutionally protected, whether or not such material is constitutionally protected. That's exactly what the statute says. Never seen a statute like it before. Congress explicitly trying to allow companies to sidestep and do indirectly what Congress can't do directly. So I think that that goes to the theory of recognizing that if it's state action in disguise, as I believe it is rampantly today in the realm of big tech censorship, then actually the standards according to which we have to measure their behavior are not the standards that we normally apply to a private company, but the standards that we apply to state actors themselves. That includes the Constitution. That includes the First Amendment to the Constitution. So that's what I see as a more promising set of solutions than where I see a lot of the populist wing of the Republican Party heading towards antitrust solutions because they don't know what else to propose. Okay, let's open it up to, to anyone. Uh, let's go to the back. Uh, we have gentleman and then... Uh, Hi, thank you so much for um, coming and giving us your speech. My name is Ben Hameen. I'm a sophomore studying political science and global affairs. And one question that I had for you as I was listening, especially at the beginning, was that you indicated that, um, you know, back in 2008, the left, that we abandoned sort of our pursuit of economic equality, um, instead of replacing it with, say, like racial equality um, or gender equality or whatever else. Um, and then, you know, you talked about, you focused a lot on cultural ways to achieve that. Um, I would maybe push back against that a little bit and argue that a lot of people on the left, even if not the Democratic Party itself, you know, we see through corporations when they put up their little pride posters in June and then, you know, continue to donate to homophobic Republican candidates or take money or, or from, you know, oil producing countries that kill LGBT people or oppress women. Like we see that too. Um, and so I understand your problem with maybe some of the hypocrisy of, well, what happens when Coca-Cola is arguing that you know, okay, we're against the whatever laws or we're talking about um, racial equality, but we're actually producing a product that is disproportionately harmful um, to black people. But that doesn't take away the fact that those problems are still there, right? Like those racial inequities are inherently tied to economic inequities. Gender inequities are tied to economic inequities. How do you propose, if not through the cultural way, how do you propose actually addressing those original economic problems that intersect with race and intersect with gender and everything else, um, you know, aside from just replacing it with, say, 
greater faith in America or, or religion or, or et cetera. I mean, those problems came for a reason, right? Whether it's Occupy Wall Street or whether modern day um, upset with racism, clearly there's, there's something that's causing that. Um, yeah. So I just kind of wanted to know wh- what your proposal would be to solve that. Yeah, so thank you for that question. Uh, I think it's a good one, and I think it's, it's a prompt uh, you know, for a for longer conversation than we'd be able to have here. But that's exactly the point. It is at least an entry point to a conversation that we'd be able to have. So I think there's one thing about the classical debates between an economically focused left and a well-intentioned right that may together care about delivering the same goals, a more prosperous nation, one that lifts the people up from the bottom, and to debate and have at it with respect to whether the right way to do that is through some model of economic redistribution or growing the pie in a way that lifts everyone up or to restore equality of opportunity in the educational system, or to say that that's not sufficient and we actually need to come back and correct for that through some measures of restoration of material equity on the back end. Let's have those debates. I I wanted to put my cards on the table, both for the purpose of this talk and in the book, that I tend to be in many of those debates on the conservative end of that camp. That's not my essential thesis in this book or in most of the work that I'm doing today. What I'd love to do is to create the conditions where we could go back to talking about those ideas and having those debates out in the open without fear of excommunication from a new church that has co-opted different ideals along the axes of race, gender, sexual orientation, the axes of genetic disempowerment, to be able to equate any entry into that debate with an allegation of racism or misogyny or transphobia or whatever label is affixed to it that today is tantamount with actually ending the debate itself. And so what I'd love to see restored is a culture for the Democratic Party in America that goes back to arguing about economic class and economic injustice and economic inequality, even if I would probably will disagree with most of their proposed solutions. I long for the day where that becomes our modus operandi for political debate in this country. I don't think that's going to be good for the Republican Party because I think it's going to make the Democratic Party more successful electorally too. That's a side note. But I think it's going to be better for our country because it ultimately elevates a standard of political discourse that allows us to work these questions out in the open through free speech and open debate. And that brings me to sort of a definition of a term that you hear bandied around a lot these days, uh, cancel culture. The way I define cancel culture is the use of force rather than free speech and open debate to settle a political question. That includes economic force, firing somebody. That includes technological force, deplatforming somebody. That includes, in certain countries in the world, and hopefully not ours anytime soon, military force. But we'll see. I think that ultimately the place we need to be is is in in a real democracy, one that is committed as co-equal citizens to settling those questions in the public square through free speech and open debate. That's the public square that I'd like to restore. And there's a feature of that new strand of the left that speaks on the axes of genetically inherited disempowerment that operates according to religious principles that effectively are quasi-religious principles that define any disagreement on those axes as one that effectively label you in a category that make you a social pariah. That's actually where I'm taking aim in the book. That's my principal aim and focus. If we were back to a political discourse in which we're talking about tax rates or regulation or regulatory policy, I'd have my views, but I'd probably go back to running a company or whatever it is that I'd want to do. But I think that losing the ability to at least adjudicate our questions through talking about them in the open, it's called the First Amendment for a reason. If we've lost that, we've lost everything. So that's kind of where I'm coming from. And I would love nothing more than to see that culture restored, as you suggest. Hi, 
Hi, uh, Luke Robson. I'm a law student here. I'm in Professor Munoz's class. Uh, you brought up this idea of right-wing versus left-wing baseball, and I agree that if that's in, in a lot of ways, that's where we're we're heading with some of these market solutions. You see, Rumble showing up as a potential or somebody who's trying to take down YouTube, which isn't going to happen. You see Parlay starting up, and that's already running into issues. Um, and then you brought brought up these Tocquevillian institutions or Burke's little platoons. Um, I'm wondering if you so, so right now there have to be certain um, certain organizations, groups that are trying to support these little platoons, these Tocquevillian institutions um, in real life. And we can sort of fight over the law all we want, but at the end of the day, if we get legal change, that's, that means nothing if there's no cultural change. We need to get back, like you said, to this cultural revival. Um, one organization that I think of is Hillsdale's K-12 initiative, which is starting these classical charter schools all over the nation to help people sort of recover an American identity and help out with this cultural revival. I'm wondering if you have other organizations. I mean, we're at Notre Dame. There's, there's plenty of cash in the room right now. Um, and sometimes people just need a little bit of help pointing that cash in, in yeah. the direction. Um, so I'm wondering if you have any other organizations or institutions that you think people should be looking at to support these legitimate Tocquevillian institutions. Sure. So, yeah. There you go. <laughs> exactly. I would be remiss uh, to, to sort of to not point out the educational institutions that start right here at home. Uh, and so, look, I think that uh, I think they're going to I think they're going to fall in a few different categories. I think some of them are going to be nonprofit institutions that rest outside of the educational sphere. I, I'm, you know, there's this thing about starting nonprofit institutions that you know, this is a discussion for another day. But I, I'd love to see operate according to the same standards of rigor as you see in market forces that market forces bring to bear in the private sector. So I am toying with the idea of actually starting such a nonprofit myself under the banner of the American Identity Project, reviving a sense of shared national identity. You'll hear about it if I do, but I, I would only do it if I, um, if I were truly committed to it. I think that a lot of other people are similarly, uh, you know, similarly well motivated. I think that any efforts that focus on the revival of a shared national identity, whether that's in education, whether that's in our private sector, whether that's in other spheres of our lives, that's, I think, something that I think is, is particularly important. I think institutions in, our, in universities are especially important because I do think that higher education, in the name of advancing liberal ideas, have actually been one of the great, uh, one, one of the great execution sites of, of liberal ideas or classical liberalism itself. One of the stories I talk about in the book was actually my uh, favorite story about Christ that I read at St. Xavier High School where I uh, went, to, went to high school despite the fact that I'm not Catholic. A lot of St. X alums come here to Notre Dame. I read a story about Christ that was from Dostoevsky's book, The Brothers Karamazov, and there's a chapter entitled The Grand Inquisitor, where it tells the story of how Christ came back to earth during the height of the Spanish Inquisition, and he's spotted in Seville, Spain by the Grand Inquisitor himself, who recognizes Christ on the street and locks him up in the prison cell, and the peak of the chapter is the dialogue between the Grand Inquisitor and Christ, and what the Grand Inquisitor tells Christ is that we, the church, don't need you anymore. In fact, your presence here impedes our work, and he sentences him to death the next morning. And you know, I won't you know, spoil the story of how the story ends, uh, you know, to talk about that in the book and my reaction to it. But I think any institution that is standing up to that new orthodoxy, that has the courage to be purposefully countercultural at a moment where you have 
institutions from a prior era that may have been the safeguards of classical liberal ideas of free speech and open debate and individualism and ideation and idea meritocracies that today have become actually the executioners of the very ideas they were supposed to safeguard. I would say look within those institutions themselves to find the actual nodes of the, of the counter movement that often needs support because fear is more naturally infectious than courage, but an act of purposeful courage can be pretty infectious too. So uh, with that said, I think that's a, that's a fair pitch for, for your program here, Professor Munoz, but I think I, I'm a big respecter of, I'm a, I'm a big fan of what Hillsdale's doing. I spoke there a few weeks ago and I think there are efforts like it spawning across the country. It's not a coincidence that this center is the one that invited you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there was uh, Grace right next to you. There's a lady right here that had a question. Right in front of you. Ben, did you have a, did you have a question? Oh, right next to you. Thanks. I'm Malisha Antonio. I'm in the um, PhD program in theology here at Notre Dame. Uh, I ag wholeheartedly agree um, that every American citizen should be educated in civic virtue and know their civic duty. But do you think there's any particular civic virtue or duty for the upper classes, those that have not just financial capital, but social and cultural capital? And I ask this just because it is a trend in moral theology books on social ethics right now to stress throughout the books uh, equality of rights and equality of duties and responsibilities. But then they come to the solution of how to make that come about, and they look to the upper classes without having really justified that throughout the book. So yeah. do you have some thoughts on that? So, so I generally think that if we can start from a blank slate in the next generation and begin from even terrain and say that your civic duties are shared evenly, the civic service, perhaps even a component of military or quasi-military adjacent service that comes with your attributes as a citizen, that that actually is the right starting place from which to cultivate an idea that we're co-equal as citizens, even though we may end up being unequal in our talents as athletes or musicians or businessmen in the private sector or academics in the academy. That's the vision I'd like to see. Now, I think a big part of why you may see people on the other side of this question look to disparate obligations that accrue to the rich is that we're not starting from neutral territory. I'd be the first person to acknowledge that, that we haven't actually lived in a society that applies our civic duties evenly. I'll just give you a live example from this year where I think personally we have a civic duty as Americans to welcome home the Afghan nationals who stood by this country through thick and thin, even as our country may have erred in the policy agenda that we pushed there, people who took risks for themselves and for their families to stand up for America. I think they're every bit as American as every one of us, maybe more than some of us, in standing up for the values of this country. We have a civic duty to bring them home. But we have to bear those civic duties evenly. We don't just bring them home to central Ohio or northwest Indiana or central Wisconsin. I think we should see them go to Beverly Hills and the Hamptons and Martha's Vineyard and Hollywood and Silicon Valley. I say that jokingly, but I'm not joking at the same time either. It's easy to preach about that, sitting from your perch in Martha's Vineyard or in Silicon Valley. It's a lot harder to be able to, to have one of the same people live in your home at the same, at, at the, in the same breath. So I think that the, my answer to that question isn't so much that I believe that we should have a theory of the redistribution of duty that's disproportionately borne by people who are better off, but actually the, you know, a theory of the distribution of duty that is even, that is purely even. Whether you're rich or poor, whether you're bringing Afghan allies home from abroad, 
We're gonna bear those duties evenly, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're black or white, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, and whether you're the kid of one as well. I think that that's hard to do in a generation of adults. I think it's easier to do though in a generation that begins fresh anew for the kids who are entering first grade today if they graduate from 12th grade being inculcated with those values woven in affirmatively through civic education and even civic service. I think that that can be not a silver bullet, but, but one of a, a number of cultural solutions that I think stop us from perpetuating not the material in inequity, but the civic inequities that underlie it that I care a lot about restoring. Great, I'm gonna ask you to move to the other side of the room. There's been a, a woman in the back who's been very patient. So just give a second for the microphone and then we'll get a few more questions. Yeah, and, and as she travels, one of the things that I wanted to point out is, I think it's one of the things I'd like to see the political right in this country do a better job of doing, is not just deconstructing the hypocrisies of the left or deconstructing even policy agendas relating to redistribution of wealth or whatever, but to affirmatively stand for the kind of res restoration of civic equality that I think both sides of the political aisle would care deeply about restoring in this country. And we're gonna start to run short on time, so quick questions and uh, quick answers. Okay, we'll sounds good. Sounds good. Hi, sorry. Questions just, have been good. I'm mostly guilty. But yeah. My name is Noel. I'm a junior here. I just wanted to push back a little bit. Um, I think your thesis hinges on the idea that it is possible to separate politics and capitalism, but by nature of sourcing, as you gave an example of the Uyghur region, um, that in itself is a political position. So when you say that there's no thoughts, uh, like when you talk about excommunication from this like woke government complex, are there certain ideas that should be excommunicated. Like if someone in the US decided that slavery should be on the rise again, like in the Uyghur region, I think all of us would be inclined to not purchase goods from that specific company that endorses those things or to employ people who support those ideas. So how are we able to, in this sense of morality, separate our consumer choices while also not supporting things that, that inherently aren't in our own beliefs good? Yep. Great question. So I'll, be, I'll be, give you a brief version of it. What I'm pointing out in the hypocrisy there is actually part of, part of the solution is seeing through the hypocrisy. To know that when the NBA paints Black Lives Matter on their court, you really shouldn't pay attention if they're really perpetuating and supporting a regime that perpetuates the greatest form of slavery that we're seeing abroad. So seeing the problem itself is there part of the solution. Now the question is, how do you satisfy our moral impulses as a generation? I'm, not a, I'm no fan of thinking that we're going to be virtuous by mixing morality with commercialism. I think that that's a shallow and superficial act that gives us the feeling of a symptomatic therapy for our moral hunger without actually fulfilling it with something deeper. So here's where I draw the line. Do I wanna to go to a barber who has a Nazi swastika on his, on his front window, but somehow have to separate the side of my brain that says I don't wanna go there? No, I, I think that part of the way capitalism works is that we shop at the places we feel like shopping. Do I think that we should organize a protest with a bullhorn in front of that barber shop? That's where I draw the line because there you're no longer exercising your own consumer choice. You're trying to starve the barber. So that's sort of uh, you know at a, at a very high level the way I draw the distinction in the spirit of a short answer. That's what side of the line I'd fall on is I don't want to go to the barber, but I don't believe in a world in which we are going to economically boy. And I'm picking the most extreme example. Nobody really has a swastika in their barber shop anymore, but somebody who failed to have a BLM sign around when everyone else did, treated like as though he had a swastika, that you might see today. Well, I don't think that we should have a bullhorn in front of that barber shop either to starve the barber, even though that doesn't mean that you have to go there if you don't want to. Thank you. I think I'm the first non-student. <laughs> I work, for, for one. I'm sorry. Yeah, I work for an avionics company as an engineer. More than 100 
customers and we have government, military and commercial contracts. So you know there's a mandate. Uh, I'll, I'll come back to that, but I've heard the word culture used a lot. And as you were talking, I said, what creates culture? And I thought about it, and I'm sorry I missed a lot because my brain would kept cranking on that. And I said, well, it's, it's behaviors that are reinforced or punished over time. And then I thought, okay, in my work situation, one of those companies where um, they had a question and answer session about this mandate. And my question was, is the mandate ethical? And I used the Nuremberg Code to say that it wasn't. What startled me afterwards, you got a couple people, uh, well, I'm trying to get to fear, because this was another thing, and I, I'm sorry for jumping around, but you said that courage can be infectious too. And I think I'm gonna go home and ask my wife, are you ready for me to lose my job? Because two vice presidents were at this session, question and answer session, and they came up to me and to my little cube and said, Thank you. And I drove home that evening and said, why did they whisper? There were two directors that did the same thing. Discussions around the water cooler that ensued was, oh, by the way, I sent a letter to the CEO. And they assured me he read it. I condensed everything down to three pages. And I said, where I work, I see placards of our military people and the work that we do to protect them. This unethical mandate makes me wonder, what the hell are we defending? A couple people came up and said, thanks. But I told the CEO, can my company take the lead, get together with all these other companies, and say, we're stopping work. This is unethical. We teach our employees about ethics. We're stopping work and find out who has the strength. And then I said to my colleagues, what if we all walked out? And I got a big laugh at when I said, let's all the, these corporations tell the government, no more work, stop. Where are you going to get your hardware from and software, from the Chinese and the Russians? That got quite a laugh, but I said, I'm not joking. Who has the power here? So, so I, I, um, I respect the spirit of your question because I think it channels the way that so many quiet Americans feel today. Look, I think that public policy can create the conditions for a cultural revival. It can take the horse to the water, but at the final act is gonna have to come from actual individual resuscitation of living out the culture that we want to see to, to as, as Gandhi said, be the change we want to see in the world. But I don't think that we're even doing the first thing yet. So that's, I think, adding, making political belief, a protected class, for example, one of the things that I argue vehemently for in the book and elsewhere, I think creates the conditions for people who don't have to go home and ask their wife whether they're going to have to be prepared to lose their job or take the risk of not putting food on the dinner table just because they express themselves freely. So, so the thing that I stand for more than anything else is a restoration of a culture where we can all speak our minds freely while giving our neighbor the same courtesy in return without an expectation that the neighbor is gonna agree with what I have right. to say. I, I wanna parse that from being really careful from the use of force to fight force in response, which 
I am sympathetic to perhaps the need for some of that in the short term, maybe. But I think in the long run, I care about having a country left at the end of it, too, rather than winning a culture war where both sides may risk accidentally joining the same church under a different name. And my definition of cancel culture earlier, I'll stand by the same definition, is the use of force rather than free speech and open debate to settle a political question. And so the part, the, if you want my opinion, um, the part that speaks to me and that I would say absolutely we ought to be able to restore is a culture where people don't whisper by the water cooler but are able to stand and express their true beliefs of why they stand up to the orthodoxy that they feel is being imposed on them by their employer without fear of economic punity for doing it. The, the side of the line where I probably don't fall on the line is to say that we're actually going to you know, boycott and stop doing our duties in a way that may leave, take the risk of leaving this country worse off or buying our software from the Chinese or the Russians to do it and use that lever of force to get to the same place. Uh, I, I think courage without force is, I think, where, where I come out on that line. But those are debates we should be having. And I'm not yeah. saying you're wrong to, to contemplate what you're contemplating, but I'm sharing with you my opinion. That's where, that's where I come out on a question like that. Just one, one last comment. Uh, I'm grateful for this place. I have hope for the young men and women who spoke today. It gives me hope for our country still. So it's good to see Thank you. the people. Thank you. So th this is a pushback on exactly this last question, because I don't see any empirical grounds for the hope. <clears throat> the, uh, <laughs> when, when I was in uh, college in 1976 at the University of Chicago, if we had been told to wear masks, quarantine, eat in dining halls that were arranged in inhuman ways, we would have burnt every one of the 55,000 signs on the quad the next day. My students all conformed and complied. They've been primed and groomed. I don't recognize them as Americans in the way I was an American in 1976. The task of cultural renewal is much more difficult than what you're making it sound. <laughs> Well, I, uh, I think whatever, whatever uh, our famous, uh, famous quote from, from JFK had it, uh, you know, we do these things not because they're easy, but because they are hard. And so I don't mean to make light of the task that's ahead of us. I wouldn't have stepped down from a comfortable position of a well-endowed company that I had built and grown to focus on the efforts that I am as, as an author and activist now if I didn't think that it actually took real effort from real Americans making real sacrifices to save a country that is worth saving. And I do think that's the position that we're in. We're the equivalent of an identity crisis at the end of the 20-teens, much as we were, I believe, an identity crisis at the end of the 1970s, when many Americans may have felt the same way back in the late 70s, down to not only the economic conditions, but the absence of a shared national identity that it took the selective pressure of times that ultimately are as dark as they were back then to create the conditions for the rise of leaders like one of my heroes, Ronald Reagan, who I described earlier, that ultimately restored that national identity with a vengeance. I'm with you that it's not going to happen naturally. This isn't just a, a moment where we, and which I sometimes find in armchair conversation. 
it's as though it's a law of physics. The pendulum's gonna naturally swing back because it always has. It only has because there were brave Americans who were willing to step up and make sacrifices needed to do it. But I think that with the right revival of the shared values that define what it means to be American, with with the right memorialization of the ideals that define what it means to be American, I think that it's not too late yet. I think if the 2010s were our diversity decade, then I think the 2020s can be our decade of reviving those few values that still bind us together as one people. I think we have spent too much time celebrating our diversity that we've forgotten all of the ways in which we're the same. I think that we have celebrated our diversity so much that in absence of something greater that binds us together, our diversity is meaningless or we're really just nothing more than a different looking group of higher mammals occupying a common geographic space, doing what our iPhones told us to do on a given day. That's what I see, but that isn't America. I'm with you on that. But I think that if the, if the 2010s were that decade of celebrating our diversity ad nauseum, and I am with you nauseated over not only that religion, but the many others that have accompanied it, then I think the 2020s can still be the decade of reviving those few values that define what it does mean to be American. I don't mean to make it sound easy. I think it's simple in that it's not hard. Uh, it's, it's simple in that it's not complex, I should say, but it is hard in that it's not easy. So if I made it sound simple rather than complex, it's because I do believe it's simple. But that doesn't mean that I think it's easy. I think it's gonna be hard, and I think it's gonna involve real sacrifice, and, and uh, you know, I hope, I hope each of us can, can play our small role and make our own small sacrifices in whatever way we can. Okay. Also hard is raising children. But we'll make it a little easier for you. Oh, thank you. Hey, this will fit him perfectly. Oh, thank you. I love that. Thank you. This is great. This will, it's like perfect for his age. Thank you. So the book is Woke Inc. Uh, the bookstore is here with copies, and I'm sure you'll stick around and sign. Yep, I'm going to be out of the table outside, and, I think, yeah. Uh, thank you to uh, Mr. Uh, Ramasamy's generosity. We have free copies for any and all students who would like a free copy. Uh, For those more advanced students, uh, you can buy them uh, right outside. Um, Before we thank our speaker, uh, right after uh, we finish, I'm going to ask our speaker to go out to the the signing table right away uh, so you can sign some books. But uh, uh, before you do that, uh, please join me in thank you. Thank you. Thanking. Thank you so much. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This is a great gift. Cool. 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 Why don't you take me?